1: Hello and welcome to My Property with John Pidgeon and Emily Wallace. We are on vacation at the moment, just having some much needed R&R. So we've got a replay that we, well, I actually did it uh, on my own last year uh, and it is my eight point strategy for property investing. Now this has come at a perfect time for you guys that are thinking about investing in 2024 but don't know what to do and how to do it. So it breaks down eight succinct points that you can follow and it gives you an understanding of what to do and how to do it. So be sure to check that out and have a listen in and go from there. Welcome to My Millennial Property with John Pigeon and no Emily Wallace today. It's John going solo for the first time. Uh, she's got a lurgy so all the best to Emily in her recovery. So I'm actually down in country Victorian Minyip where I grew up. I'm in the Dumb Uncle Lodge and retirement village where my sister works and it's back to where it all started for me. Um, Actually down here, uh, improving a house, renovating a house that we've recently just purchased, so I'll talk to you about that in a moment. Today, I want to talk to you about uh, eight-point strategy and a question that came up in the Facebook group that got the juices flowing for me to want to expand on the question that was in the Facebook group. So without further ado, let's get into it. Okay, so uh, yes, as I said, down in Minyip, um, why would I buy a house back down here, population 300 people, if that... Um, but look, my property journey has been an interesting one through three states, uh, or four states actually, but I've lived in three states, and I've always wanted to be a rate payer back in my hometown, and property prices, as you know, have grown considerably over the last few years everywhere, and this little town called Minyip has not missed out on that either. So long story short, we purchased a house here for 140000 why did we do it? Well, as I said, wanted to be a rate payer, but I also wanted a, a little bit of a project. So my wife and I brought the kids down for the school holidays and have, um, yeah, done some improvements to it. So paints, carpets, uh, new kitchen, or not new kitchen, new, new oven, uh, split system, general tidy up of the garden, and uh, yeah, it's a 950 odd square metre block. In town, walking distance to everything, when you've got a population of 300, walking distance is everywhere. And uh, yeah, part of the strategy, why would uh, why would someone buy a property like this? Well, we think it's going to rent for about probably 250 per week, so the yield is, is pretty solid. Uh, we're not buying it for capital growth. We don't expect it to be worth three 400K in anytime soon. Uh, but yeah, a little bit of um, emotional attachment to have uh, a piece of real estate back in my hometown. Um, And when you've built a portfolio, uh, I think majority of the portfolio, the strategy behind it was always capital growth. And um, this is probably the first time where we've had the, suppose, the flexibility of the choice to say, you know what, I'm just going to buy a house because we want um, to improve it, we want to do something to it, we want to get some cash flow out of it. But with the focus not solely being capital growth, which is pretty cool. Twenty odd years later, can swing back around and, and do something like this. So been a busy week or a couple of weeks doing doing that. Um but thought I'd share that with you because uh, a lot of people reach out and say, Well, what are you doing currently with your with your portfolio? So that's what I'm doing. So hopeful we get a tenant pretty soon. Um that yeah vacancy rates are extremely low as they are everywhere around the country. So we're pretty confident that we'll get someone in there pretty soon. So that's the update on that. But uh, yeah, so let's forward to a Facebook post. Um, And it probably stemmed from the feed. If you're not on Facebook, um, someone reached out and said, look, love the episode that John and Emily did on each other. Would have loved to expand in more detail on on, uh, on their stories. So, um, as a result of that, we obviously, we love the, the feedback that we're getting from everyone. Um, but, uh, yeah, Rachel Henske, uh, made a question or, or a comment to say, thanks for the podcast. Love it. No, thank you, Rachel, for supporting it. Uh, I'm interested in recommended suburbs slash regional centers in each state for investment properties. What rental yield should we be aiming for? Now, when I read that, it's like a great question and a lot of people would love to know the answer to that, Um, but a true politician's answer, there's much more to it than just simply the the rental yield and and maybe the location. Um, And it made me think about maybe our our eight point strategy that I coach to and how we need to get every one of those correct before we uh, dive in and purchase a property. And, and I want to roll through those, those eight points, if I may. So, if you've got a pen and paper, awesome. Um, if you haven't, that's great. You can re listen and, uh, and, and take it all in. But quickly, the eight points are what's the strategy? What's the class of property? What's the price? What's the yield of property? Uh, what's the location? Whose name is it going to be in or the buying entity? what's the loan to value ratio going to be, and, and what's the type of property. So they're the eight points that we, we want to get answers to. Now, commonly when buying property, what most people, I suppose, draw themselves to is the location. And indeed, that's only one of the eight. Is it more important than the other? Potentially, but we need to understand what the other seven are in, in order to make sure that we've got that location right as well. And we spend a lot of time researching these particular locations to buy in, but a particular location may not be the best for, for you and your individual situation. And and when people ask me, what's the best or where's the best place to buy real estate? Well, it's got to be somewhere like Bondi, average growth rate, probably eight, 9% per annum over the last 30, 30 years or longer. So uh, can we afford to get in there? Does that fit our eight-point strategy? Absolutely not. 99% of the population can't afford to go in there. So taking location in isolation is, uh, is quite a risky play. So let's delve on, on the yield play that Rachel asked for uh, to begin with. So a lot of things come into play when we're thinking about our yield So I'll take an example. If we go and buy a property for 500,000 and it's going to rent for 480 per week, that's a 4.99% yield. So let's call it a 5% gross yield. So how to work out that calculation is simply rent per week times by 52 weeks in the year divided by a purchase price uh, gives you a percentage or times it by 100 to get the percentage. So what does that mean? Well, 5% yield... Is about twenty four grand in rental income if we take off two two weeks of vacancy at the four eighty per week. But what sort of loan do we have? So, if we've bought a property for five hundred k, do we have a loan of four fifty because we put in a ten percent cash deposit? Have we paid the deposit using equity? Uh, have we paid for the stamp duty out of the equity? meaning that there's a loan attracted to that equity as well. So we may actually have a loan of more than five hundred thousand. So the, the loan might be five hundred and twenty thousand, for example, even though our loan to value ratio is eighty percent because we've used equity, right? So understanding what interest are we paying back to the bank on a monthly basis. Now take a five hundred K loan at five percent is twenty five K per annum. Now, that's $1,000 more than the rent that you're getting for that 50 weeks of the year plus insurances, council rates, property management fees, et cetera. We know that we're going to be negatively geared. So why do I give that example? Well, for Rachel and everyone else out there, we need to understand what yield you need in your situation to be able to give you the right strategy to look in that particular location to get that required yield. So when we go back to our eight points, we look at our strategy. What is the overall strategy? Is it capital growth? Is it cash flow? Is it tax benefits? Is it combination of all three? Has one got more priority over the other? We need to work that out. Now let's say that it is cash flow as our number one strategy. So cash flow, what does that mean to us? Do we need five grand a year? Do we need 10 grand a year? Do we just want it to To cover our running costs and that's all, we need to understand what that might be. So once we've established the strategy, we then look to our class of property. So what is our class? Well, the class is, is it going to be in a blue chip location, which generally comes with a higher price point, lower yield? So the answer to that for this particular strategy is no. Uh, is it a class B property, which is a long-term buy and hold? Are we going to set and forget for the next 10, 15 years and let it do its thing with either cash flow or growth? Or is that a class C property, which might be a renovation, flip, um, development, high cash flow injection, get out of it and then put your money into something else? So based on what we've gone with as a strategy for, uh, as cash flow, then it leads towards a class B property. So we know then that that's our aim, is to buy the property, hold it for a long period of time, get some cash flow out of it, and away we go. So notice by now, we've spoken about the strategy in the class, we haven't even looked at the location yet. So let's go then to price. So when we're looking at a price of a property, a couple of things come to mind. First of all, how much will the banks lend us? What is our mindset and our risk profile around how much we'd like to spend? How much deposit have we got? And are we using cash or equity for that? And then, based on our overall strategy of cash flow, what do we need to spend to get the required yield? I.e., if we go and spend 900000 and we're looking for a 7% gross yield, it's going to be extremely hard to get in a $900,000 property because it's going to need to rent for $1,100, 1200 a week or, or somewhere around that amount. So we need to look at our price. So we've got our price locked in based on what we've spoken about there. We then go to our buying entity, whose name should it be in. Right Now, generally speaking, we talk to our accountant about that and they would give their feedback on on your situation. But you really need to be giving them an indication of what you want long term. You need to be saying to them, well, accountant, I'm going to be uh, buying three properties in the next 10 years or I'm going to have a diversified plan that has some shares, I'm going to contribute a lot to super uh, and I'm going to buy this property and then that'll be it. Right? Based on the conversations that you're having with your accountant, they'll come back and say, look, this is what your buying entity should be. Usually, for most uh, first-time investors, it will be in your personal name or personal names with a partner. Uh, But again, it's a question for your accountant. What difference does that make? Well, again, if you've got a strategy that is cash flow, are you going to be paying tax on that? Are you going to be that positive cash flow eventually that you'll be paying more tax on it, even though you get the nice tax uh, the nice cash flow benefits? Are you going to be paying tax on that? So that's where you'd have that conversation with your accountant to say, look, accountant, this is my strategy. It's it's high cash flow property. What do you think? Now the next one is an interesting one because this is the loan to value ratio and most mortgage brokers, and this is who you need to speak to in regards to that, will look at it and say, are you using cash or are you using equity? And what is my serviceability? So the ability to repay the loan. And your mortgage broker will say, well, this is the interest rate you can get at 80%. This is the interest rate you can get at 90%. Are you interest only? Are you principal and interest? And also... Uh, what's your appetite for lender's mortgage insurance? Do you want to pay lender's mortgage insurance, which is usually capitalised into the loan, uh, or are you more comfortable putting in a 20% deposit and avoiding the LMI? Personally, with my portfolio, I've always been happy to capitalise the LMI and put less of my money into the deal as possible and borrow as much as I want from the banks or I can from the banks. Right Now, that means that getting equity out may take a little bit longer because you're starting from a little bit further back, i.e. at 90% versus 80%. So then we look at um, the situation where cash or equity has a big part to play in that. So cash, we're putting in a 10% or 20% cash deposit. We've got less loan which means we're going to have a higher cash flow uh, strategy or, or property to begin with. If we're using equity, which is essentially the paper value of another asset that we've used or had, then our holding costs are going to be greater, but we don't have to use any of our own money. right? Now, why would we do that as opposed to using our cash? Well, we might have a Mortgage that we want to pay down first, so we've got our owner occupier that we want to put more money into or have sitting in an offset account. We're going to keep that there against what I call the bad debt, and use more of the good debt or borrow more good debt from the banks for the investment property. Right. So we come to the conclusion that that's the uh, deposit amount that I want to put in, and am I using cash or equity? Right now. Where the next part of it is the yield comes into play is whether I've used cash or equity, right, because the yield essentially determines the strategy. Because if I'm saying that cash flow is our strategy in this instance, the gross yield is, is one calculation that never changes. It's the rent per week times by 52 divided by the purchase price. However, the net yield is your situation and this is where it's really, really important that we understand what our net yield position is or in layman's terms, what is it costing us after tax? What is it costing us when everything's said and done What is this property costing us or giving us in cash flow after our tax return? Right, provided that we're working in Australia, meaning that we're paying tax, we can claim some of it against our our taxable income. Now, a strategy of high cash flow means that generally speaking, it should be giving you a cash amount after tax that is a positive amount that comes into you as a terms of a refund or it's already cost you nothing to hold and is giving you a cash amount each week in your pocket to go and do what you want with. right? But if you're using an equity deposit, it's going to cost you more to hold that property because you've got a loan over and above the normal loan that you're taking out against the property. Hopefully that makes sense to you. So for example, again, 500K property, you might borrow 400K from the banks as an 80% loan, But you're using 20% equity deposit, meaning that using 100k of your equity plus the stamp duty, let's call it 20 grand, we're using 120k of your own equity, meaning that essentially you're paying interest on 520,000. So the holding costs of that property at, at say, a 5% interest rate is going to be a lot higher than if you were using a cash deposit. A lot to take in, right? So we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back and thrash out the location and then the type of property. plushcarecom slash loss. Okay, we're back. This is uh, tough stuff. Talking on your own, no one to uh, no one to answer back or or um, give you a bit of a chop out when you're exhausted. But here we go. So covered six of the eight strategy p- uh, parts that I think are critical to anyone's investment purchase. So we covered strategy. That's uh, the, We went with cash flow as our focus. We talked about class. We're going to have a long term buy and hold. We've got a price point that we didn't really say what was, but we need to understand what's comfortable for you. Uh, We've got a yield amount that we want based on our uh, strategy of cash flow. We've spoken about the entity and how important it is to have your accountant in your corner and for them to know your strategy overall and your long term goals. We've spoken about loan to value ratio, and whether that's eighty or ninety percent, or seventy percent, or ninety five percent. Right, in some ways, is irrelevant. We need to understand whether we're using cash or indeed equity. Now, for first time investors uh, that that haven't owned real estate at all, the only option for you is actually cash. You can't use equity because you've got no asset which to extract equity from. So. We're now down to the last two. So as I said at the start, the location is one part of it and we, and no part of this in the first six parts have we spoken about location. So I think where a lot of investors get it wrong is they actually go to the location first. They identify the location and say, look, yeah, this is where we're going to buy. Now we'll drape our strategy to fit that location. And in a lot of cases, I think that's the wrong way to go. I think we need to look at location as an equal component of those eight parts and it might have more dominance in some situations it might be just a, a real standout for us as uh, in our research but that's that's fine uh, but understanding that we're we're weighting the other seven parts of our strategy just as important All right. or with importance so uh, type of property so what have we got at our disposal? Australian real estate, we've got houses, we've got units, we've got apartments, we've got townhouses, right? Now, there's other versions of that, like townhomes and um, homes that are really townhouses, townhouses are really homes, like there's how, whoever words are different is, uh, depends on which state you're in and everything else. Um, and there's, of course, like duplexes and there's, there's uh, bare land that we can build on, et cetera, et cetera. So we need to understand, uh, again, all of our other parts to our strategy to take into account what type of property do we need? So, what's going to give us the highest yielding property according to our cash flow? Well, in some cases, um, units might give us that because we're not paying as much for the land. So, do we go for something like a two-bedroom unit that's giving us higher cash flow, uh, as opposed to a four-bedroom or a three-bedroom house on a thousand square meter block? Right. So, understanding what the land might cost um, versus looking at the units once we confirm the locations, right? So we look at the, all the types of properties available to us and link it up to our overall strategy and what that might mean to us. We also need to think about what assets are going to give us the best growth over the long term, Right? and what that supply and demand might look like. So now we're looking at more um, macro indicators for property investing in respect to supply and demand. We're looking at vacancy rates. We're looking at uh, what's going to grow the asset in its particular location. Right Now, even though our overall strategy is not capital growth, We'd still like to appreciate that on the way in, to know that it's going to be an okay performer for us and not just give us that cash flow. It can give us both along the journey, then it's been a win-win. So first and foremost, we're looking at the cash flow, what's our unit to be, what type of asset's going to give us that. Is it a two-bedroom unit, uh, one-bedroom unit, not massively fond of? We've got to think about who's going to rent it off us and the flexibility around who can rent an office, and then also who's going to buy an office one day, right? So a one-bedroom unit, uh, who can rent an office? Well, basically a single or or a couple that hasn't got kids or dogs or cats, and that's about it. Someone with a two-bed, right, we can have uh, two singles, we can have a couple and maybe a child, we've got a little bit more flexibility of who can rent it and who can buy it off us, right? So if we have a four-bedroom house with a backyard, now all of a sudden we might have um, a larger family, we might have singles, we might have someone with with dogs and cats and whatever else that that want to play around the backyard. So we're opening up our scope to much more people than we just have when we have a one-bedroom unit. So... We then think, we, we, we dial in what that type of property then is. So let's say in this instance we've gone with a two-bedroom unit. Now, the last part of this strategy is our location. So what if our two-bedroom unit isn't popular in that particular location? That's when we need, might need to pivot left or right of that um, type that we've created. So we might keep that loose for the moment and then dial it in later. So location, we can do all the research in the world, but if we can't afford that particular location that we've identified, then we've was- wasted a whole heap of time. So what we need to do is look at our price point and look at our yield and then see where what locations are available to us around the country and our risk profile around that. So are we borderless investors? Can we uh, invest interstate and sleep at night, no problems? Are we going to add value to this property at all? So do we need to be able to fly in or or drive to this particular location to add the value or are we gonna have someone else add value for us and we just project manage that? So we need to think about all those things before buying in a particular location. So once we've dialed in the price point, we can look at right what will that get us in that particular state that we're wanting to buy in or anywhere in Australia. And that's the, probably the first time you'd start to look on places like realestate.com or Domain. Right, so if we had $500,000 to begin with, we're not going to buy a house in Melbourne. We might be able to buy a one or two bedroom unit in various parts of Melbourne so if that 's then our strategy, then we may be able to buy a unit in Melbourne that might be the location that we use, especially if we live in Melbourne and we want to add some value there. If we live in Perth, for example, uh, what will five hundred k get us there at a stretch it'll get us a house um, it will definitely get us a unit and townhouse etc etc it 's a big wide world out there, so trying to hone it into one state and then narrow it down again to two or three locations and then dig deeper in those locations to then dig uh, or confirm one location is where I would go. So we might choose a particular state, then we'd choose three, three suburbs or towns and then we would concentrate on one of those locations. So we need to look at the location that's going to... Hit our strategy, and our strategy in this instance is cash flow. So, what location is going to give us the greatest yield? And not all locations are equal. So, I'll give you an example of where we're buying at the moment, right? The 140 purchase that's renting for 240, 250, right? There's not many places around the country that is going to do that because of that entry price, okay? as I said at the start, I don't think it's going to be a 300k property in five years time. If it is, it's a bonus. It was more for uh, that emotional buy-in um, for us, which I say to never to do, but I can because I've been doing it long enough. Um, but if I look at the town next door to us, we're paying 200k for a property and the yield is quite uh, lower than, than here because of that increased property price, which really comes down to the land value being more expensive than this particular location right here. Okay. So in summary, there's a lot of ifs and unknowns, and I don't think we're ever going to be 100% sure on our purchase. We're not ever going to be 100% sure on our particular location, and if we are extremely bullish about one particular area, I think that's maybe a warning sign. Have we, dig, have we dug deep enough into what it is about that location that we really like? Are we emotionally wrapped up in that location because we uh, live there? Are we emotionally wrapped up because we're working there? Uh, there are a number of reasons as to why we can get caught up in a particular location where we say, look, we need to invest in this area. But think about our strategy first and foremost and then if that, that location does tick the box overall for your particular strategy then fantastic you've ticked the boxes to 8 points of your strategy right and i can guarantee you maybe not guarantee but if i if you can get answers to your 8 points of your strategy you're going to have a lot more confidence to be able to go in and buy the property that you want that fits your personal situation And I say personal because we talk to others about where they're investing and what they're doing, and I think, yeah, let's go and do the same thing, but it has no relevance and no meaning to your situation whatsoever. So you need to identify your eight-point strategy and what's going to work for you. Extremely, extremely important to understand that. All right. So, Rachel, you've really got the juices flowing from my end to be able to uh, expand on that question of yours, and I probably haven't answered it in in full because you've mentioned I'm interested in recommended suburbs and regional centres, but what I wanted to get across to you today, to everyone out there listening, is it's not just about the location, right, it's about your potential situation and what that strategy might mean to you, okay. So I want to just quickly touch upon one more sort of question that was in that group before I finish off here today. Uh, Liz Bridgie says, I'd like to hear about the decision-making process of either selling PPOR, principal place of residence, to buy the next one up the ladder versus converting into investment property and buying a new PPOR. How much equity would we need to leave in the original home? How much deposit do we ideally need for the next place? Now, um, she expands a little bit longer on that, but I just wanted to touch on that question. It's a fantastic question question, and such a common one is, I bought my own home to live in. I'm living in it. It's now become too small. I want to upgrade to a better location or a better dwelling. So I want to uh, move on, but do I keep this property or do I sell it and take the proceeds? There's no, again, one size fits all. But if I sell it, and I've been living in it, I don't have to pay capital gains tax. And the positive of that is you also get to take your cash and put it into your dwelling that you're going to be living in next, which again, as I said earlier in the episode, is bad debt. So there's a lot of positives to selling it because you're able to take the cash and put it in and keep your loan lower on that next property that's going to be a principal place of residence, right? Where people get confused is, well, hang on a minute, what if I kept that property and that property performed for me from a growth point of view and it was positive cash flow, all my dreams have come true because now I've got two assets, I'm living in the location I want, I'm living in the dwelling I want And I've got my previous principal place of residence being rented out and it's growing in value, right? Isn't that a great situation to be in? Yes, but maybe not. Because you may have a debt on your own home that's now, now the one you're living in that's unattainable in terms of running costs. Because you're using equity to pull out of that first property, you now have borrowed over 100% of the the uh, purchase price for something that's non-tax deductible. So we've really got to understand your numbers and what that means for you. And Liz, in your situation, understand what your debt would be. And you might draw a line down the middle of the page and say, right, this is the cash amount I'd have if I sold that property, and this is the debt that I would have on that principal place of residence. Versus if I got the equity out, this is what my loan would be on my new principal place of residence versus the yield on my investment property and see which one is going to give you the cash that you need, right? Understand your lifestyle. If you're borrowing over 100% of the running costs on your own mortgage that's non-tax deductible, no tax refunds. Can you go and do the things you want in your life? Are you having kids? Are you traveling? Are you, uh, are you you're having one less income for a period of time in the next five years? We can't just look in the next 12 months. We need to look in the next 5, 10, 15 years to understand what that game plan might be long-term for you. So an awesome question, Liz, and I get it a lot in my clarity calls, right? And again, there's no one-size-fits-all, so it's really – I. I find it really exciting to thrash that out in a clarity call with someone because when we do the numbers, we can clearly see what's going to be the best outcome, right, but also without emotion and that third party coming in, um, which I'm able to give in that clarity call is is so powerful because of that. And That was sort of an organic plug for the clarity call, to be honest. But in any case, I'm the only one on the show today, so um, I can do that, so... (laughs) But awesome questions, guys. Uh, as uh, Emily and I say always, we, we love people putting some questions into the Facebook group and, and feel free to send us any direct messages um, with questions that, that you may have or want to discuss or have discussed on the, on the podcast for sure. But um, yeah, big shout out to all of our team. Uh, Message Rachel this morning in our back end saying, look, I'm making sure I get this right before I... Um, launch on my own. So thanks again, Rach, you're a gem. And uh, to everyone in the My Millennial team, it's a a pleasure working with you all. And I think that is all for me today. And until next time, let's uh, have some fun.